Amen. Uh, well, hey, church, we're going to uh, transition uh, to a part in our service where we uh, just humbly, collectively uh, come and, and just spend some time in God's Word. And we've been walking through 1 Corinthians for a total of nine weeks. We spent eight weeks in 1 Corinthians. We took one break on our family Sunday, but um, it's been a really fun time. Hopefully you had a chance to read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 before you came this morning. Uh, that's where we'll be spending most of our time at today. Uh, the title of the message um, today is uh, Knowledge Versus Love. Knowledge Versus Love. We're going to look at the relationship uh, between knowledge and love that we see in chapter 8. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there. Um, we're going to spend most of our time just in the first three verses. Uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, but for contextual purposes, we're going to read all of it together. And then we'll pray over the preaching and teaching of God's word, and then we will dig in. So if you would turn with me there, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, it says this. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better off if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours is in no way, or in no way, becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now then, you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience. You are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for, uh, again, just who you are. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us already this morning through song, through testimony, and now, Lord, through your word. I pray that you would just allow these words to come to life for us as your word assures us that they are, they're alive and active uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, uh, meant to, uh, to pierce the innermost parts of our heart, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and encouraging. And I just pray that over all of us today as we encounter your word, we encounter your very presence, um, and that we would be drawn closer to you as a result. Equip us, Lord, um, to know you better, to make you known more effectively. We love you, we thank you, we give you this time as it's already yours, and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, uh, we are going to be talking about the relationship between knowledge and love. The title of the message is Knowledge Versus Love. And I think all of us, whether we 
uh, would maybe consciously say this or not, know that there's a relationship between knowledge and love. For example, the more you know something or know about something, uh, the greater chance you might like or enjoy that thing, right? Or maybe on the flip side, the more you get to know something, the more you maybe dislike it, right? So it's not a proportional relationship necessarily with these things that exist in this world. Uh, to give a couple examples, um, the more that I have gotten to know the menu at Taco Bell, the more I have found that I love Taco Bell, right? I love all the different things on Taco Bell's menu, right? From the Baja Blast to the, the nacho fries, which are seasonal. Uh, I love Taco Bell, right? And I know that because I've, I know the menu. I've had multiple things on the menu. If I had not had anything on the menu, it'd probably be kind of silly to say I love Taco Bell. There'd be no grounds for me to say that, right? And on the flip side, and I risk offending some, I'll just preface with this. Um, on the flip side, as I've gotten to know the menu at Cracker Barrel, I'm not a big Cracker Barrel fan, right? Um, and so some of you might disagree. As, you, as your knowledge has grown, you've grown your love for it. Or maybe you agree with me as your knowledge has grown, you have a dislike for it. Um, that's not just true for, you know, trivial things like restaurants. It's true for things that matter more. For example, uh, my wife, you know, it's Father's Day. Uh, I give my wife a hard time because our daughter was born like six days before Father's Day. So I got a Father's Day six days into being a dad, uh, which was fun. But there's a difference when, when my wife was pregnant, and we already loved that baby, right? We already loved her before we even saw her. But as I've gotten to know her more, know what she looks like, know her personality, know just who she is, right? I love her even more, right? So much so, right? Maybe you can relate if you're a parent in here that, that we try to protect that love that we have for our child. Have you ever heard the saying, I don't even want to know, right? Like a kid does something bad and you're just like, you know what? I just, I don't even want to know because I know it might jeopardize the way I feel about you now. And so I'd just rather not have the knowledge that might influence my love for you, right? And so I say, I don't even want to know, right? Or what about with your spouse for those of you who are married or for those of you who are seeking a spouse right you're, you're in this process of dating where you're getting to know somebody right and if you get to know them enough and you you like what you get to know then eventually it turns into this thing that we call love and when you love them you then get down on one knee and you ask that person uh, to marry you and then you spend the rest of your life with that person right continuing to get to know them right I remember uh, when I went to Pastor Nick's uh, wedding, him and uh, Brooke's wedding, uh, I was not yet married, but most of the, the men in his uh, groomsmen party were. Uh, and I was kind of at that point where I was really prayerfully considering if Maddie and I were at that point. And I remember asking every guy that was married in his groomsmen party, how do you know that you know? And they gave me the answer that is the most least helpful answer when you're in that position. They say, well, when you know, you know. Right? <laughs> It's like, well, what does that mean, you know? Um, but of course, eventually I got to the point and I say it to people now, it's like, you just, you just, when you know, you know, right? You just can't quite explain it. But let me ask you this. How silly would it be, right, if, you know, my wife and I go through that process, I'll use us as an example, we dated for eight months, I got to know her over the course of eight months, and eight months in, I asked her to marry me, and two months later, we were married. How how silly would it be if after we had gotten married, I just stopped the pursuit of knowing her? I just said, you know what? I already know you enough to know I want to marry you, 
So what else really is there to know, right? And I just halt any trying to know. I don't want to know about her day anymore. I don't need to know about her likes or dislikes or, or anything as she grows and matures and changes. I just say, you know what? I know enough. I'm good. Right? How silly would that be? Right? Would that give you cause to question whether or not I actually love her at all? Probably, right? But how often do we do that or do Christians do that in their relationship with Jesus? Right? They get to know Jesus enough to say, you know what? Salvation's for me. That's a good thing, right? You know, and the Bible actually talks about our relationship with Jesus kind of as a marriage. We're, we're unified when we put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. But how silly would it be then if we just all of a sudden we've, we've experienced salvation in Christ because of his love for us and we love him and then we just stop seeking to know him altogether? Right? Wouldn't that give you cause to question whether or not that person actually loves Jesus? And I fear that that happens a lot in the church today. And, and that's kind of what Paul is addressing here in this passage. Again, it's a relationship between love and knowledge. And again, they kind of can seem like they, they you know, conflict, uh, but they really don't. They go hand in hand. And so what I want to do is give kind of a main biblical truth, then give some context to chapter 8, and then kind of walk through the definitions of, well, what is knowledge? And, and what is love? And how do those things work in unison together? And how can we make sure that we're pursuing both uh, as believers and followers of Jesus? And so the main point, or main biblical takeaway truth, however you want to say it, is this. The more deeply we know God, the more deeply we love God. The more deeply we know God, the more deeply we love God. And the more deeply we love God, the more deeply we will love others. The more deeply we know God, the more deeply we will love God. And the more deeply we love God, the more deeply we will love others. I can feel like a little bit of a tongue twister if you say it fast, but we're going to walk through because each element of that main point is important. And Paul addresses all of it uh, as, he, as he responds in chapter 8. And so just to give a little bit of context, and if you remember, again, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church at Corinth. A lot of it is Paul responding to things he's heard about the Corinthians um, by other disciples who were kind of under Paul. And then other things were uh, specifically from the Corinthians. There were questions that they asked. And that's kind of what we've been spending the last few weeks on are those questions, right? Last week they asked questions about marriage and sexual morality. And in here in chapter 8, they asked questions about uh, food idolatry and about food sacrifices. And really this answer kind of extends for three chapters, which I'll address more uh, in, in a moment, but he, that's kind of the, the vibe that we're getting at this point in the letters. Paul's responding to questions that they had raised, and here it's specifically about food sacrifices, and that may not feel like a relevant topic for us today. Chances are you've never eaten food that was sacrificed, or you've never been around food that's been sacrificed uh, to something, but for the Corinthians, it was uh, situationally unavoidable. Right, at that point in the day, they would not have been able to avoid uh, coming face-to-face with food sacrifices. And here's kind of what I mean by that. Uh, the way that their culture worked among non-believers is they had lots of different gods that they worshipped and that they pursued. Right? The, the Christians, obviously, as Paul even acknowledged, they had one God, Christ alone, uh, from whom all things exist and by whom all things exist and who they exist for, right, the one God, but the other people who lived amongst them, the non-believers, 
Um, the, the cultural practice was to believe in multiple gods. We had a god of the, the harvest. You had a god of the, the, the workplace. You had a god of the household. And so when they wanted good things to happen for them in any one of those areas, they would offer food sacrifices to whatever idol they were hoping to find success in or, or fruitfulness in their life. And so they would literally, they would offer these food sacrifices, but then the problem was, is when they offered this food sacrifice, the, the wooden carved idols weren't actually eating the food, right? And so then they had to figure out what they were going to do with the food. And so what they would do is then sell it or give it to the marketplace, or they would give it to restaurants, or they would keep it in different uh, temples uh, to eat amongst the, the other groups of uh, belief systems that were there. Or they would even find it and give it to people in their homes, right? And so if you were a non, or if you were a Christian that was a Corinthian, and you were living amongst non-Christians, you were going just like we go to restaurants that are not Christian restaurants. There was a good chance that that Christian restaurants had, or that non-Christian restaurant had food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so the question here, there's there's kind of two parties, right? There's who Paul calls the the weak, and he kind of uses that term sarcastically to refer to those who didn't have the knowledge. And then he, re- then he doesn't really refer, but he refers to the other group as the people who, who had knowledge, right? Or you could consider them the strong, but again, he kind of refers to that semi-sarcastically, and we'll see that in just a moment. But see, so kind of those who have knowledge, those who don't have knowledge. And the ones who had knowledge are the ones that write this to Paul, and they basically don't even ask him the question, the question they're asking isn't, is it right to eat food sacrificed to idols? Because they've already come up with the conclusion. And for the knowledgeable, what they're saying is, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. That was the conclusion they came to. That was the knowledge that they were referring to. Right? And they're saying, because, they're saying it's okay because we know that idols aren't even real. Right? There's only one God. And so even if they're offering the sacrifice to something, it's not really going anywhere anyway. And so it's okay if we still eat the food. Right? But the question they were really asking is, there's this weaker group, these brothers and sisters who, who, who don't believe what we believe, and it's creating this conflict. Right? It's, it's, their, their conscience is telling them that it is sinful to eat uh, food that had been sacrificed to idols. So their question isn't, is it right or not? Their question rather is, how do we deal with the conflict that exists between us and them? And so Paul is responding to, to that question, which is where he then addresses the relationship between this knowledge that they claim and the love that they ought to have for their brothers, but aren't really demonstrating for their brothers. So let me read verses one through three again. And I want you to count, because we're talking about knowledge and love here. So I want you to count, or if you like to highlight or underline your Bible, you can highlight or underline these. But every time the word love or knowledge is mentioned, I want you to count. Uh, as we read this together. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Everybody count? Anybody count how many times those three verses say the word love? Twice. Anybody count how many words or how many times it says the word knowledge or know or known? Seven. So nine times he references those two words in a span of three verses. So clearly they're the main idea here. So what we're going to do is we're going to break them down 
word by word, and we're going to start with knowledge. Knowledge is mentioned seven times in these three verses, and pretty clearly, just by reading those verses, you can see that there's good knowledge and there's bad knowledge, right? Because just to give a quick demonstration, one, he says knowledge puffs up. Well, that's not a good thing, so that must be bad knowledge. But then at the very end, it says that, that he is known by him, referring to God. Clearly, that's a good knowledge, right? So the first thing we need to point out is, well, which knowledge are the knowledgeable demonstrating here that Paul is referring to? Right? The Corinthians, we'll see, had bad knowledge. How do we know that it was bad knowledge or, or false knowledge, you could also call it? Well, first, Paul tells us in chapter 10, right? I mentioned earlier that, that Paul responds to this, this conflict or this particular question over the course of three chapters. And he gives them five different reasons uh, why their knowledge is bad. Uh, chapter 8 is just the first reason. Chapter 9, Pastor Nick's going to preach on next week, which is Paul's giving his example. They have to follow, look at his example. And chapter 10 looks at the, the example of the Israelites, the example of the Lord's Supper, but also just a simple example of, of edification of fellow brothers and sisters. So this is just the first chunk, but later in chapter 10, Paul actually says, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Right, and so if we're not careful and we take these out of context, if you just read chapter 8, it could kind of make it seem like Paul's saying, well, you can eat it as long as your brother doesn't have a bad conscience about it. It's not really what he's saying, right? Because in chapter 10, he just says, no, it's, it's, it's actually wrong, right? And so here, though, the point he's making isn't just saying it's, it's wrong. It's that here's one of the things that will reveal to you why it's wrong, right? Which is kind of the second part, right? He tells us in chapter 10 that it's wrong, but we also know it's wrong, not just, you don't have to read four, you don't have to read chapter 10 just to see that they're wrong in chapter 8. You can see in chapter 8 as well, their knowledge led to sin, which means that it could not have been good knowledge, right? Because good knowledge wouldn't lead to something that is sinful. Look again at verses 10 through 12. It says, For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Right, so, so you sin against Christ, which he then says, following verse 12, he says, Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. So they personally are sinning. Right, it was also ruining their brothers and sisters. So we don't... So we know their knowledge is bad because Paul says it bad, it's bad, but also because here in verse 8, it leads to the ruin among brothers and the personal sinfulness among themselves. So I want to give four, so given it's bad knowledge, I want to give four kind of truths about knowledge that we see as Paul addresses their bad knowledge in these verses. The first one is this, and it's the most obvious because it's pretty much word for word, but false knowledge puffs up. False knowledge or fake knowledge puffs up. I think I'll have it on the screen there by me. Now, the Merriam-Webster definition of puff, which felt, I Googled puff, and the first thing that came up was like food puffs, like for babies, uh, which I'm now familiar with. Um, so it took me a little digging to find an actual dictionary definition of this kind of puff. But it literally means, and this isn't even a spiritual definition, it means to praise too much. To praise too much is what puff 
means, right? And we use it that way, maybe whether we realize it or not. Have you ever, uh, maybe it's a question for the ladies but, or, or guys too, I guess, but uh, if you're like in the gym, there's always that guy or those guys that they kind of walk around like puffed up kind of, right? And what they're doing, they're trying to make themselves look bigger than they actually are, right? Anyone, someone turns their arms like this, you know that that's kind of what they're, they're doing. And, and they're trying to give an appearance that makes themselves look bigger or better or, or greater than they actually do. They're puffing themselves up. We do, we do it, though, not just with our physical bodies. We do it in, in different ways as well. And this isn't, this is it's just a, a commonality among all people. And we have this tendency to do it, right? It, it exists even in, in nature. Have you guys heard, I'm sure you've heard of, of the puffer fish, Right? There's a fish called the pufferfish. And I didn't know this. I did a little bit of research. There is actually a whole species of fish that do that. There's like 24, 24 different fish species that all kind of puff up by sucking water into their bellies to expand. And all of them do it for the same reason. It's a protective measure. Right? Because they're all small fish, right? but, but they'll puff themselves up to make themselves look larger Right? so that the other fish will leave them alone. Right? And so that's what he's saying false knowledge does. Is it, is it, it just puffs up. It's not even real. Right? Like a puffer fish isn't really that big in its natural state. They're just making themselves look that big. Right? Guys aren't really that big when they walk around. They're just making themselves look that way by taking in a big, deep breath of air. Right? He's saying that's all this is, is it's just making yourself look as though you have knowledge when you really don't. And it's self-praising. It's praising your, it's making yourself big. And the problem is that when you make yourself big, you're inadvertently or advertently making God small. So that's the first thing we must know is that false knowledge puffs up. But true knowledge, if false knowledge puffs up, then true knowledge must do the opposite of puffs up. I had a hard time coming up with an antonym of puff. Uh, but what I came up with is humble. Uh, true knowledge humbles. True knowledge leads to humility. It does the exact opposite, right? If puffing makes us big and God small, right, then humility makes us small and God big, which is the right order of how things ought to be, correct? Right? The more you get to know God, here's how you can know if your knowledge is good or not. If you start feeling like you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, then that's probably bad knowledge. But if it gives you this humility of recognizing that I am absolutely nothing on my own, but that God the Father, the creator of all things, he is, he is big. I, all I can do is bow at his feet and praise his name because without him and his grace and Jesus dying on the cross for me, I am absolutely nothing. That's what true that's the place that true knowledge ought to lead people, but that's not what the Corinthians were demonstrating here. They are demonstrating a false knowledge that puffs up. The third truth we see about knowledge is that true knowledge does not exist apart from love. Now it's a common misconception when we read that famous verse, chapter eight, verse one, where it says, "Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up." It makes it kind of seem like those things are working against each other. Like you either have knowledge and you're puffed up or you have love and, and you build up. But it's really just you know, fake knowledge versus true love. You can also have true knowledge and fake love. 
Right? But true knowledge and true love cannot exist apart from one another. And again, that's how Paul is pointing out the fact here in chapter 8 that their, that their knowledge is false. Because if you read through chapter 8, and I, and I kind of already touched on this, but, but Paul does not directly say in chapter 8 that eating food sacrificed to idols is wrong. He's simply saying, he does it indirectly. So instead of just saying food being sacrificed to idols is wrong, he says, here's how you can know that it's wrong. The fact that you're not loving or this knowledge that you claim to have, right, is not loving or it's not connected with love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, 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 it's not connected, totally disconnected from love, which is demonstrated by two things, right? One, we see because they're being personally selfish, right? They're focusing one on their rights is what it says in in, in verse 9, it says, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block. So it's selfish in that regard. They're focused on their rights as opposed to loving their neighbors or even on the fact that we don't really get any rights because we've sinned against the holy God and are nothing without him. But the second thing is, they, uh, is that they sinned against Christ. Verse 12, we already read. But they're not just personally selfish by focusing on their rights and sinning against the holy God but it's also kingdom selfish. Right? That's how Paul reveals in chapter 8 that their knowledge is disconnected from love, therefore false knowledge. Is that they're, it says they're ruining other believers. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's a pretty aggressive way of saying that what they're doing is bad. That their actions are actually, their knowledge is actually ruining other believers. And so it's personally selfish and kingdom selfish. And so, so Paul's just pointing out that, that I can tell your knowledge is bad because it's disconnected from love. Right? And a lot of times we do that. We do that. We, we focus so much on having you know, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. It's not actually, we're, we're hearers of the word, hearers of the word, hearers of the word. We even become knowers of the word. But we then aren't ever doers of the word which makes our knowledge unloving knowledge. It doesn't mean our facts are wrong. It just means that it's head knowledge, not full heart belief knowledge, which is what Scripture says is what saves. Belief in him. The fourth point is this, knowledge of God. It's not just that they have to be together, but knowledge of God actually fuels our love for God. Knowledge of God actually fuels our love for God. Now, love also fuels our desire to know God, which we'll see as we define love in just a moment. But knowledge comes first. Knowledge comes first. And that may sound weird, but think about it just logically. If you don't know Jesus, you can't love Jesus. If you don't know the gospel, you can't know God's love for you, therefore responding with love, right? The knowledge part has to come first. Now, ultimately, God's knowledge of us and love for us is what came first. We're simply responding from our knowledge of those truths and then demonstrating them with a love afterwards. But it starts with love and there's a a baseline amount of knowledge that is actually required for salvation. Meaning if you don't know that Jesus died on the cross saved you from your sins, there is no other way. There is no other name under, under heaven by which one can be saved. And so the gospel is, is, the, is the baseline of knowledge 
that then leads or fuels our, our loving affections. When you know what Jesus did for you, dying on a cross, taking your place, not just in a moment, but for eternal wrath is what he bore on the cross for you and I. And then gifted us freely to no doing of our own, not by work, so that none of us can boast or, or puff up. He gave us righteousness, a hope for eternal life, assurance of our salvation. When we know that truth, it begins fueling a love for God, which then fuels a desire to know God, which then fuels our love for God even more, and it starts building and building and building. So knowledge of God actually fuels our love for God. The more you know of God, the more you will love him. It goes right back to the illustration I gave at the beginning. The more you get to know your spouse if you're married, and the more you love them, right? How much more true is it for the God of the universe? And this leads us to a second question, just to kind of recap those. Uh, false knowledge puffs up. True knowledge humbles or leads to humility. Uh, true knowledge does not exist apart from love. And knowledge of God fuels our love for God. That's the truth that Paul demonstrates about you know, right knowledge and wrong knowledge how we can kind of help define it. But that leads us to another question is, well, what is love? What is love? Now, love is mentioned twice in our three verses, but let's read them uh, again uh, so we can focus on them once more. It says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, verse 3 says, if, right, if anyone loves God. So that implies that it's possible that there are people who don't love God, which at one time was all of us. The only means by which we can love God is because God first loved us. And so clearly there's this category of those who love God and those who don't love God. So there's true love, but there's also false love. Just like there's true knowledge, false knowledge, there's true love and false love or, or non-love might be a better way to say it. And so if, if true love, according to this verse, builds up, what does false love do or, or non-love do? Tears down, right? Wouldn't that be the opposite? If, love, if, if true love builds up, then non-love must tear down or hate must tear down. That's the first point as we define what is love. It's that true love, or, or sorry, fake love, tears down. And again, what were the knowledgeable in our passage doing? Were they building up with their knowledge? And notice, I think the, the CSB and the ESV capture it pretty well. Um, if you have one of those versions, you, you may have noticed that some of the, the verses are in quotations. And that's because scholars believe that Paul was kind of sarcastically, again, they sent letters that had questions in them, and Paul's kind of sarcastically quoting what their letter said, right? Like, so at the very beginning, quotations, when he says, we all have knowledge, Paul's quoting that from what they wrote already to him. Um, but what did that knowledgeable that Paul keeps kind of in quotations saying in his letter, what, what, what did they do? Their, their knowledge tore down the believers, but it didn't just tear down the believers, it also tore down their own relationship with Jesus, which we kind of saw as we looked at the definition of knowledge. Verse 12, once again, it says, Now when you sin like this 
against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Now, there's a really deep truth there that I just want to point out, and that's this, that all sin is primarily and most importantly against God. Right? Sometimes we get our feelings hurt as if people are sinning against us. Right? Now, they might sin against God in a way that the consequences directly negatively affect us, I mean, what Paul is even saying here is that, look, when you sin against your brothers and sisters, you're really sinning against Christ. And so by their lovelessness, tearing down their brothers and sisters, it led to personal sin, which fractures their relationship with Jesus. So their lovelessness is tearing apart their own relationship with Jesus. It's worsening their relationship with him, but it's also tearing down or worsening other believers' relationship, which again we saw in verse 11, where Paul says that, that, that you are ruining them by your lovelessness. And that's how we know it's loveless, is because it's tearing down. But if false love or non-love tears down, what does Scripture tell us that true love does? It builds up. True love builds up. That's the next point that we have on our screen here, true love builds up. And just like false love or non-love tears down the individual as well as other believers, true love builds up both the individual and the believers, right? It builds up, builds up means, here it literally means to edify is kind of the Greek word that's used here. Edify, which can be defined as just as, according to Strong's Greek lexicon, to, to promote growth in Christian wisdom affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. That's what it means to build somebody up. So I want to be clear, it doesn't, when we say build up and tear down, it doesn't just mean you're building someone up if you tell them what they want to hear, right? And that there's not a time going to be tough love that might tear away necessary things in their life that ultimately is, is a part of these things which promote, promoting growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness, right? But it happens both in your own life, right? But it, and it also happens in the life of those around you, which in turn leads to uh, the kingdom being built up as well. You're building, love builds up your own relationship with Jesus. It also builds up the relationships of Jesus with other people around you, as we see here in Scripture. But then lastly, and, and maybe most critically, is it builds up God's kingdom as well. God shares his love for us, through us, to others so that they might know him as well. Lost people coming to know Jesus. Which is why you can start to see that love and knowledge are so intertwined. Right? That if, if you have all this vast knowledge, but you do nothing with it, right? it's not building up the kingdom. Right? True love builds up God's kingdom both from within and around as well. The third point we see in love is that true love, these are kind of just opposites of the, the knowledge points, but true love does not exist apart from knowledge. Not only does knowledge not exist apart from love, but true love does not exist apart from knowledge as well. Again, they're not separate. Right? You can't love somebody if you don't know them. Right? And notice the, the way that Chapter or verse 3 ends. It says, if anyone loves God, what does it say? He is known by him. 
It's almost as if Paul intentionally replaces the word known with loved. Wouldn't that almost make more sense grammatically the way that we would read that? But if anyone loves God, he is loved by him. Right? That goes in line with 1 John and all across Scripture where it's, you know, we only love because God first loved us, right? That's essentially what he's saying here, but he uses the word known instead. God, part of what makes God's love for us so incredible is that he knew the depths of our sinfulness and loved us anyway. And so we get to demonstrate and share that same love outwardly. We get to know the depths of sin of the people around us, and we get to love them anyway. Again, it doesn't mean we're accepting of, of wrong actions or, or permissive of sinful behavior among Christians, right? But we, 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 even in the knowledge of those things, we still love them, whether that's uh, rebuke, loving rebuke, loving correction, right? But we can't, we can't love actionably if we don't know the person, right? And again, our love for God as well is tied to our knowledge of him. The more deeply we know God, the more deeply we will love God. And the more deeply we love God, the more deeply we will love others. Fourth point is this, as we get ready to close. Love for God fuels our desire to know God. And this is where I said it earlier. This starts to become... Uh, you know, circular, right? where, again, it starts with knowledge because unless you know the gospel, know Jesus, then you can't in turn love. We can't love God out apart from knowing the gospel. So we know the gospel, which leads us to, to love God as a result, and loving God leads to, to loving others. Right? And when we're loving God and loving others, it's giving us a desire to cre- increase our knowledge. Right? And think about it this way. Like how many times have you, out of your love for God, right? we just talked about door-to-door ministry, how many times have you you, out of your love for God and desire to be obedient to him, you go and start sharing the gospel with people around you, right? And while you're sharing, they ask questions that you don't know the answer to. So then, what do you do? You go and seek the knowledge in those areas, right? So your love, your displayed love for other people will, will even in a practical sense, lead to a desire to know God more so you then can demonstrate your love for him more and the circle or the cycle just continues. What happens is when we don't move, when we don't transition from one to the other. Again, and I, I keep, I've said it before, but I know so, not, I won't say so many, but I know that there are Christians that exist, that it's all about gaining knowledge. They know, they know I guarantee there are people who know infinitely many more verses and, and, and scripture and contextual things about this book than I do. Uh, but if it just stays there as just up here and, and never manifests itself outwards, then we're missing something. But on the flip side, there are people who kind of just, oh, I'm, all, I'm just all about the love. I don't really know much about that, but I, I love everybody, right? And it leads to bad love, right? And so it requires both. And so as we close, I want to leave us just with a couple of practical application questions as as the worship team comes back up, I want us to just contemplate these questions as we leave this place together. First is this, how can I better seek knowledge of God? How can I better seek knowledge of God? And I'm going to continue to kind of use the the marital example because I think it's such a good one. Um, But how important is it for you guys? And I've heard when people gave us marital advice, they, they often said, plan out time that you're going to be with your spouse, right? Because life gets busy. It gets crazy. 
It gets hard, right? It gets difficult. And if you don't plan out the time, then you're probably, maybe just not going to do it, right? And so people will say things like, you know, an, an, once an hour a day, uh, you know, one day a month or however they do it, and then every once a year you do a bigger trip or something like that. But you strategically plan out time for knowing your spouse, right? You don't just say, you know what? Circumstances of life just been difficult. Sorry, babe, we can't get our time together today. No, I'd be a bad husband, right? And if we let the circumstances of this world or any other excuse for that matter keep us from planning out a specific time where we dedicate ourselves to knowing God more deeply, right? Then we're just bad Christians. In the same way I'd be a bad spouse, you'd be a bad Christian. So I encourage you to contemplate as you leave. And if you need help, we've, we've got a kind of reading plan we're doing now, just one chapter a week, right? Walking through interactive questions that we provide just out there. If you need a place to start, start there. If you need another place to start and you're hungry and want more, Come talk to a Bible group leader, myself, anybody, and we'll, we'll help guide that direction. But I encourage you to contemplate for your own self. How will you or how can you better seek knowledge of God? And then the second question is simple as well. How can I better share my love for God? Because, again, if it's true knowledge, it's knowledge that's displayed, knowledge that's shared. And, again, with my wife, how often do I strategically think about that? I plan out, okay, I'm going to get her some flowers. Her birthday's coming up. I'm going to show her how much I love her. Right? And likewise, why would we not strategically you know, think of ways, not just kind of some spontaneous, again, it should be organic. Right? If I'm only like, you know, on the first of every month, she gets flowers, it's the only time, eventually it's going to become, okay, you're really just doing this because you're doing it, right? but it can, it can facilitate an, an organic love in doing so. What we can't do is just kind of sit back and say, well, I'll just, I'll just do it. Right? We've got to intentionally seek to know God and intentionally seek to share our love for God with the people around us. So we're going to close. I want to just read the main point once again, which is this. The more deeply we know God, the more deeply we love God, the more deeply we love God, the more deeply we will love others. My prayer, my hope for us as a church, we will be a church that knows God deeply and we will be a church that desires to make our love for God known effectively in the community around us that so desperately needs to hear it. So I'm gonna pray and I encourage you to contemplate those two questions. How can you better know God and how can you better show your love for him?